Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. If there's one thing more than two decades of crime reporting has taught me, it's that everything can change in an instant. I never take life for granted. I know there might not be that chance to say one last I love you. The truth is, tomorrow is never promised. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I'll tell you about a young woman who lived life to the fullest, like every day was her last. You know, it was crazy because actually that night it was it was weird. We had like a whole heart to heart, coincidentally. And she did tell me actually that specific night, I love you so much. This is the story of Natasha Farah and her final goodbye. It was a crisp summer evening in August of 2014. Like most Friday nights in downtown Calgary, bars were filled with people raising a glass to the end of a busy work week. At closing time, at one of those clubs, the party spilled out onto the street. Groups of friends wanted to hold on to that last bit of fun before calling it a night. And then... Nine one one for what city? Someone just got shot at um outside of Broncos on eleventh Ave Southwest and First Street. Yeah, yeah, someone got shot by the bar. Please come guys. Just come now. Not responding. Gunshot. Many, many. Fifteen, twenty. Is she awake? Oh my god. Is she awake? Before I get into details of this tragedy, I need to take you back to the late nineteen eighties. Nineteen eighty-eight to be exact. It was an exciting time in Calgary. The city hosted the Winter Olympics and it was brimming with life. Figure skating took center stage with the Battle of the Bryans and Elizabeth Manley became Canada's sweetheart. I was pretty young back then, but my whole family caught Olympic fever. And I remember the mood in Calgary was electric. Thousands of miles away from Calgary, Naima Ismail was a 24-year-old single mom living in Somalia. She had just given birth to her second daughter, Natasha. That's where this story begins. Naima had big dreams for her daughters. I saw other people was traveling and going to Canada and all that, and I was like, I need to go somewhere. At least I can raise this kid and I can go to school for study myself and um, get some education. That was my whole plan. She decided to move to Canada. By 88, it started getting a little bit too much. So at that time, I decided to leave. So before I left, that's when it started getting bad. So... I managed to leave and then the war broke down. 
because the war was really bad by 89, and that time I was already arrived in Canada. Starting over alone in a strange new country would be tough for anyone. But Naima had two babies under a year old with her. She couldn't help but second guess her choices. It was a little bit too much with two kids. I, it was overwhelming. I even tried to contact my mom and, um, and saying, I'm coming back. I can't do it myself. Somehow, Naima found the strength to persevere. She spoke English, and that was a huge asset as she tried to settle in to life in the big city of Toronto. Naima had several friends who had moved there before her. I settled because my friends were already here, so the, the government helped us a lot, seriously. It was a blessing. Government helped us. We got a place to stay. And uh, we actually got jobs. By 1988, we got work permit. So since all of us, we speak English, we end up getting jobs. Naima is really remarkable. She's overcome so many obstacles over the years. And at that time, she juggled work, college, and raising two little girls. Years later, she would have two more children, a third girl and a boy. So for a long time, it was just my mom and my sister, Tasha, and myself. It was just the three of us, so we were always really tight. And then um, when my mom had my, my brother and sister, it became like, you know, it, um, it, it just became the five of us. So it's, it's always been a really small, tight unit. Um, and so we've always been really close, and my mom's always made it a point to keep us like that. That's Nari, Natasha's older sister. She knew me probably better than anyone and, and vice versa because we were so close in age. We're not like fully a year apart. Um, we're, we, we actually, for 10 days out of the year, because her birthday was April 15th and mine is April 25th, we'd, she would turn my age and we'd be the same age for 10 days. So um, a lot of the times she would always bring that up that I'm not fully her big sister in that sense and that we're kind of the same age. I was a lot more quiet and, um, like, I guess, reserved as a child, and I still kind of am, and she's always been more, like, of the chatty, talkative one, and she's a lot more outgoing. Natasha was very much an extrovert. She found it easy to meet new people and try new things. I think because she was uh, she was a very talkative person, and she's all, she was always the type of person to, like, go and seek knowledge. She knew a lot of information about random things that most people didn't, I think, because she went out of her way to learn about things. Um, she was also very witty. And I always remember her just knowing a lot of random things that most people didn't. And I think it allowed her to have like conversations with people because she knew so much. When she was 17, Natasha narrowly missed being at the scene of a random shooting in downtown Toronto. She was shopping at the Eaton Centre and walked down Toronto's busy Young Street minutes before shots erupted. It was a boxing day. They were going for shopping. That girl, kid who died there on that random shooting, the gang started shooting each other. Natasha missed that. She passed there. I was When I see on the news... 
we didn't have at the time cellular phone. When she came home, I say, hey, why are you in downtown? And she was like, mom, can you believe we passed a foot locker? And that's after we passed that when the shooting happened. Another young girl, who was also out shopping with her family, was killed that day. The 15-year-old was an innocent bystander caught in the crossfire of a gang shootout. It was a major news story back in 2005. The senseless and random violence still infuriates Naima. Anybody who's taking a gun and doing a random shooting in a public, whether you are drunk, whether you are whatever, you already you have a state of mind thinking. You, you're doing shooting. Obviously, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to get hurt. Naima was very protective over her family, so it was hard to watch her girls go off to university. That was part of the reason why our, my mom brought us to Canada, so that we could have that, um, the opportunity of like just, you know, furthering our education and, and just having a better life than she did. Um, so, it, you know, that was sort of just, that was just the mindset and the path. And I think that's similar to most immigrant families. Um, you kind of grow up in that mindset that you're going to go to school and, and, and get a good career. Um, so, yeah. We were both very career-minded. She was more creative, I would say, than I am. Like, I kind of went the, you know, the traditional route. Like, okay, you know, I'm going to do something in business. Um, and I kind of, that's how I kind of pursued accounting. And she was a lot more creative and didn't just um, do something just because that's what everyone else was doing. And I think that's kind of why she chose to do the, the communication route. Nari moved first. She lives in Washington, D.C. Then, Natasha told her she wanted to move west to Calgary to pursue a career in public relations. So the public relation here in Toronto was three years program. And then she graduated. And then she couldn't find a job. She was just working in one of the buildings as a receptionist. And then her friend who lived in Calgary convinced her and said, come here in Calgary, it's easy in Alberta to get a job in your field. She moved to Calgary in um, 2013, August 23rd. Natasha also knew she wouldn't be alone in Calgary. One of her best friends, Faiza Sharif, was also moving there for work. So I met her probably, I would say, 2012 um, through a mutual friend of mine. And um, instantly, once we met, we just absolutely kind of hit it off there. So um, we kept a very good relationship. And as we got closer, um, we actually decided that uh, we were moving to Calgary. It was both kind of coincidental. I wanted to move and also she wanted to move as well. So we're like, hey what a great opportunity for us to move and I mean at that time we were young early 20s um, you know two girls trying to be independent getting away from their parents and kind of starting that own independent life um, as a young adult of course working in the um, new corporate world so that's how we met. Natasha arrived in Calgary about a week before FISA. She found a place and they became roommates but ended up sharing a bond that felt more like they were sisters. 
Natasha is, was larger than life, safe to say. Very witty, very sassy, um, but very down to her, down to earth, and um, super caring um, individual. I think what her mission was was really to make a name for herself, start off as a young professional, and really, you know, strive to be great as um, as an independent woman at that time. So um, she was a hardworking individual, um, really cared for people. Um, and she was a great friend. She was there for anyone if anyone needed anything, super supportive. Everyone that would have encountered her would either, you'll definitely remember something about her. Either if it was from her jokes that she would make, um, her interactions, um, or just something crazy that she might have said. And very, very, very smart girl. Very well-spoken. Natasha had big plans to build her career in Calgary. But the two girls always made time for fun and new adventures. Gotta go to work, gotta keep your job, gotta make sure that we have our focus, laundry days on Sundays, so we would try for the, for the most part. But we, it was really about having fun and experiencing, obviously, that first bit of independence, right? If we were working, we would get home from work and uh, typically we'd probably just like make some dinner, have a game night, shoot the shit with some of the girlfriends. You know, um, during the weekends, we would go out to some of like the social areas in Calgary because, I mean, at that time we were new into Calgary. So we were really just learning the city and understanding what that kind of looked like. What was more of the nightlife? What does 17th Ave look like? So um, just kind of exploring and and, you know, as young, early 20 girls. So um, that's really what we we're doing at that time. She loved love. She loved her friends. So, yeah, it, it was it was a really good time uh, in her life during those moments in Calgary. Faiza and Natasha were inseparable. We would do a lot together. I mean, literally at one point, we would go to work together at lunch. We'd hang out together, go home together. And we had just moved into, um, I believe we moved into the Southeast at that time. And I remember that day, it was a rainy, gloomy day. Um, so we both finished work. Um, we were just kind of hanging back, you know, doing the just, just kind of debriefing about the day. And the only thing that was playing on TV at that time was, I believe it was the Trayvon Martin case that was very popular, I think. I think that's when it just happened. Um, so, you know, we were just really just kind of hanging out. And it was one of our girlfriend's birthday weekend. Um, so I knew that I had kind of work in the morning here. Um, she had the weekend off. So, you know, we're like, let's just go out. Let's go, um, let's, let's figure something out. So... Um, the night was pretty smooth, nothing crazy. Went to another girlfriend's house, kind of just shooting the shit. That night marked Natasha's one-year anniversary in Calgary, and she was feeling especially nostalgic. You know, it was crazy because actually that night, it was, it was weird. We had like a whole heart-to-heart, -heart, coincidentally. And she did tell me actually that specific night, I love you so much. It was almost like a farewell without it without kind of knowing because it was i love you so much you know you're doing great xyz you're gonna be great just know that i love you and i'm like oh okay cool and that entire week she would like she was buying gifts for folks um you know one of her girlfriends was coming over and she wanted to help her um move to calgary so she was gonna stay with us and she was just doing things out of her way of just gratitude almost with family and friends. 
Pfizer still gets chills when she thinks about that talk. It was a moment that we had for maybe like an hour. Um, and then I know that it, it, great thing as well. I know that she um, she talked to everyone that I feel like she was supposed to that day. That night, Natasha also spoke to her mother in Toronto. It was a daily ritual they both loved and looked forward to. And a lot of times, they'd end up talking on the phone more than once a day. On this call, they discussed an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C. Natasha had booked a flight to visit Nari, and her mother, siblings, and several other family members were going to drive there. It would be a family reunion of sorts, and they were all very excited. I put her on a speaker so the, the other kids could hear her voice, and then I say, Friday, we're going to be there in D.C. like on Wednesday evening. And she say, OK, so I'm arriving Friday. Will you pick me up at the airport? And I say, yes, yeah, sure, I will pick you at the airport. So me and her were just chatting and the kids are listening. And I see your brother and your sister are in the car with me. And then she was like, oh, hi, kids. How are you? So she was talking to them. Good night. Love you, mom. Love you, too. She say, love you. She told I love you, the the her brother and sister, she said, hey, love you. I'm going to see you next Friday. I can't wait to see you. That's what she said. That was her last word. I can't wait to see you guys. Then we say goodbye to her, and then we hang up the phone. Soon after, Natasha and her friends decided to go out. Natasha was known as a bit of a fashionista, and that night, as she always did, she put a lot of thought into what she wore to go out. It was a cold day. I don't know. It was August. So I don't know why it was so chilly that night. And I'm like, why don't you just wear some jeans? And she's like, no, I really want to wear this skirt. It's really comfortable. And I'm like, okay, well, this top's really cute. And I really wanted to wear wear for her jeans. I wanted her to wear jeans because she just bought these brand new heels. And it just... It, it just made it in my mind. But she was comfortable with what she was wearing. And I'm like, okay. But she was very particular on, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to, I want to wear flats. I want to wear a long skirt. I want to wear this. And I'm like, okay, let's go be great. So, and she kind of changed a couple of times. And then eventually she went back to that outfit. So I remember distinctly what she was wearing. Natasha, Fiza, and their two other girlfriends didn't have a set plan or destination in mind. But they ended up at a place called Bronco Smokehouse in downtown Calgary. It was just, oh, well, you know, let's just kind of stop over here. Let's, you know, like, let's just grab some food or let's just figure out what we can possibly do here. So it was just more of a a social night and really just to celebrate uh, one of our girlfriends' uh, birthday. The night was filled with fun and laughter. They stayed right until closing time. And after that... They stayed out front of the club, not wanting the fun to end. I was actually going to go grab the car because I had work in the morning. So I'm like, okay, we'll just hang out here. I'm going to go grab the car and just kind of like pull, pull, pull the car to the front. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another. Um, she would just kind of like look at me and she'd say, okay, go, go ahead. It'll be fine. And then within, you know, 10 seconds, everyone's lives changed instantly. I remember, you know, hearing loud shots and it, it, it was interesting because um, 
she was literally right around the corner and I remember someone dropping, but I didn't think it was her. Faiza said it all happened so fast. She didn't realize who was hit. So by the time, you know, I looked and seeing it was her, I could notice because of the sweater. But then it was also kind of disbelief, like, WTF, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I completely ran screaming. Um, by that time, you know, the police were there immediately. In an instant, Natasha was gone. What happened next is all a blur for Fiza. It was complete and utter chaos. A lot of it, I, I feel like I blacked out, but it's, it, was, it was a completely chaotic night. A lot of disbelief. Um, of course, nobody ever wants to make that phone call to you know, your best friend's mother to say that your daughter has passed uh, or her sister. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do ever. In the middle of the night, over 2,000 miles away in Toronto, Naima's phone rang. And my phone was ringing in my brain. I'm thinking, should I pick up or should I not? And then I was like, no, just look who's calling. And then when I pick up my cell phone, I see her roommate name. And I was like, ah, why Pfizer is calling me this night? What's going on? She can't even talk. And I say, why are you crying, Pfizer? What happened? Something happened to you and Natasha, that's what I say. And she was like, no. And I said, then why are you crying? Is anything happened to you? No. And then that's when she said Natasha died. I talked to Natasha. She wasn't sick. I spoke to her. She called me. She said, I know. And I said, then why are you saying she's dead? And she said, oh, there was a random guy in the street shooting. I hung up the phone. Then I wake up everybody. My cousin brother who came from London who was traveling with us was sleeping. I wake him up. I wake up my kids. My cousin also, I also wake them up, all of them. And I say, hey guys, wake up, wake up. Natasha is dead. Natasha's closest friends gathered at her mother's house and helped her to book flights. Within hours of Natasha's death, 15 of her loved ones boarded planes for Calgary. In the meantime, veteran Calgary Police homicide detective Dave Sweet also got a call. So it was about 4 a.m. when I received the phone call that morning. Within about an hour of receiving that initial call, uh, the expectation is is that uh, myself and other members of the investigative team will uh, go to the office or to our headquarters uh, building uh, where we will begin our, uh, begin our investigation. And that's when the hunt for a killer began. Within seconds of the shots being fired, 911 was flooded with calls. Someone got shot by the bar. Please come, guys. What city are you in, sir? Uh, Calgary. Okay, what's the address of the emergency? Uh, it's the Bronco. It's the what? Bronco Park. Yeah, yeah, you should come now. So, first street, 11th Avenue, southwest. 
Yeah, you bet. Right across from Bronco, uh, Bronco Pub, and there's the Max. I'm not sure. I'm a block over. I just heard it, and there's people running everywhere. Absolutely gunshots, not cars backfiring, gunshots. And I'm hearing everybody scream. Someone just got shot. Stay on the line for police. Do not okay. hang up. Are you safe? Are you okay? I'm okay, but the girl on the floor is not. Okay, can you see who's been shot? It looks like a young lady. A young lady. Is she awake? I'm not sure. It looks like they're performing CPR to her. So from the various 911 calls, of course, you get information, different people's impressions on how many shots were fired, maybe the description of the shooter, description of a getaway vehicle if there was one scene. Um, Every person calling in may have seen something a little bit different. And so 911 calls are one way of sort of uh, sussing out some of the uh, early details of things that we know. My role uh, as I equated as a primary investigator, is being a puzzle builder. And uh, to build that puzzle properly, I need to have a number of puzzle piece collectors go out, get different pieces of evidence, and then bring them back to my boardroom where I sit down and I start to put those pieces together to try and timeline and come up with a theory, an investigative theory, through the analysis of evidence on who may be responsible Witness accounts painted a clear picture of what happened that night. They saw the gunman. It was seen by multiple witnesses exiting out of a vehicle, firing a number of shots into the air, and then leveling the gun in the most callous of ways towards the large group of people outside the bar, shoots three times into the group, and one of those three bullets struck Natasha square in the chest and killed her almost instantly. Those same witnesses also provided a fairly detailed description of the suspect. Witnesses at the scene had described the uh, the gunman as a black male wearing dark colored clothing and a baseball cap with a gold chain with a large medallion around it getting into the rear seat of a vehicle. Police were also able to recover key audio and video evidence in this case. 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, of course, there's a number of, bar, uh, number of cabs picking up patrons from the bars to get them home safely after, after a night. And uh, in, in our canvas with the cab companies, we came across uh, two different cabs who had actually captured aspects of the shooting on their dash cam videos. So what I'll play for you now is uh, is is what uh, one of the two cabs actually captured. Those last three are the ones that killed Natasha Farah. There was something else police noticed from the sound of the shots fired, and it took investigators by surprise. There's two different pitches of gunfire heard. Listen. Did you hear did you hear the click click click? It almost sounds like a click click click. Just listen again. You get the bang, 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 and then you get more of a That's a different gun being fired. 
Shell casings found at the scene confirmed the suspicions. Forensic investigators were able to determine some of the shots fired came from a 45 caliber handgun and others came from a 40 caliber handgun. Police believed there were two gunmen. The question was, who fired the fatal round that killed Natasha? Witnesses were adamant the killer was wearing that distinctive gold chain. They said he first fired into the air, then into the crowd. Forensic evidence that included casings pulled from a nearby building backed the witness accounts. But police still had to prove which gun killed Natasha. We needed to know whether or not the round inside of the killed Natasha was a 45 caliber or a 40 caliber round. Because if it was a 45 caliber round, we could then place, we would know who was which of the two gunmen was using the 45 caliber. The autopsy revealed Natasha was in fact killed by a single 45 caliber bullet. Meanwhile, detectives were tracking down another lead. Witnesses said moments after the shooting, they saw the man with the gold chain hop into a getaway car. Based on uh, information we're getting from uh, witnesses uh, back at the office uh, through their interviews, we learned that um, most of the witnesses were describing that the uh, gunman uh, was the rear passenger of a silver vehicle. Officers canvassed the area looking for any additional surveillance video, and what they found was further evidence pointing to the man with the gold chain. But through the examination of those videos, we were able to do a couple things. We were able to get good video of our suspect just prior to the shooting, wearing that gold chain that was described by witnesses minutes later. It's interesting, um, in these cases, uh, Murphy's Law uh, sometimes kicks in. There was a cab that was directly behind the suspect vehicle uh, when the shooting occurred, Uh, but his front dash camera uh, was not working properly. And so, although we collected video from both cabs, uh, only one of them was really useful for us in the, uh, in the course of the investigation. The one that we really wanted, which would have captured the license plate number of the suspect vehicle, wasn't, uh, wasn't working on that night. So police had a photo of the suspect car, but no license plate. That morning, within a few hours of the murder actually occurring, we released to media what we know at this moment. The media provides a valuable, um, or they're a valuable part to a police investigation uh, in that they are our vehicle to be able to release and get information out to the public in hopes that it may generate information back into the investigation. It was that media release that led to a break in the case. And that's never happened before in the 10 years that I've been investigating murders, but in this particular case, The owner of the vehicle came forward to police shortly after the release of information to the media to tell a story of what had happened that night. 
On August 24, 2014, the driver of the getaway car contacted police and gave a statement about what happened outside of the bar the night before. It turns out the driver had only met the gunman that night and was simply driving a group of friends and got involved by chance. Detective Sweet said the driver was extremely concerned and cooperated with investigators. The driver admitted they took the shooter and two of his friends to a Calgary hotel. Police confirmed that story and tracked down even more CCTV evidence from the hotel. So we can see in the hotel video that at approximately uh, 10 minutes after the shooting, that the owner's Volkswagen Jetta arrives at the hotel and the occupants of that vehicle then exit the car and enter into the hotel. So the CCTV video then in the halls and that kind of thing, the the suspect goes right underneath one of the cameras. And uh, you can clearly see the gold medallion. You get a clear picture of their face, the way their hair was, the clothing they were wearing. The driver also allowed police to search their vehicle, a silver Jetta. Investigators found blood on the back passenger door of the car. Police believed the blood came from something Detective Sweet calls slide bite. The slide on the gun likely cut the shooter as he fired the rounds. Forensic investigators took swabs from that blood Samples were sent away for DNA testing and came back as a match to a man from Toronto who was known to police. Between the witness statements, details from the driver of the suspect car, the CCTV surveillance video, and forensic evidence, detectives were able to paint a clear picture of what happened that fateful night. If the suspect hadn't been wearing such a flashy piece of jewelry around their neck, identifying them and tracking them through CCTV video would have been much more difficult. If the owner of the getaway vehicle was somebody who didn't feel bad or have a conscience and didn't come forward to police, the outcome would have been different as well. And so... There's a number of circumstances that have to kind of all come together to to bring the case to essentially fruition. All of the evidence pointed to one clear suspect. I'll tell you more about him in a bit. As police narrowed in on the suspect, Natasha's family was struggling to come to terms with her sudden death. I'm glad she didn't suffer. It just, she died instantly. I have to be strong for this. I have to do this. And that's what she will want. She wouldn't want me to fall apart. She wouldn't want me to sit in a corner and cry. That's not Natasha. She wouldn't want me to do that completely. She will want me to be strong and be there for the rest of them and also me to be healthy. That's how Natasha is. She will always say, Mom, I want you to be strong. Her mother decided Natasha should be buried in Calgary, the place she called home. 
where she was chasing her dreams. Naima went to the mosque and then took part in a very intimate final farewell to her daughter. Her sister, Natasha's sister, my oldest daughter, she said, Mom, I think we should wash the body. That's the only way we have to do at least. And because she's a very private person, Natasha. She said, my sister is a very private person. I think you should do it. It happened in the mosque. So I washed her with my own hands. So they were giving me the soap. I washed her tie her hair and everything, cover her with a, with a cloth. For me, it was like uh, when I was looking at her and I washing her body, it's like this is the last time you're going to touch her and this is the last time you're going to see her face and her body. To me, it was like just someone who's sleeping. She was smiling in her face. She had a smile. She died smiling. I attended Natasha's burial. The girl with a zest for life impacted so many. That includes the primary investigator, Detective Sweet. Uh, I find uh, there's huge rewards and uh, huge gains in uh, introspection and even philosophy when you can develop connections with family. I think that um, those connections can allow somebody to uh, stay in a career that they love uh, for longer periods of time. This past summer, I was in uh, in Toronto and uh, made sure that I made a special trip out to her mom's place and uh, spent the the evening with them and uh, just had nice visits and um, some laughs and got to see where Natasha lived uh, before coming to Calgary. Even now, with her family living many miles away, it's Detective Sweet that takes care of her gravesite with his daughter. We have an agreement that I will go by and make sure that the uh, site is clean and and, and maintained and uh, taken care of. And so that's uh, a duty that sort of uh, my daughter and I have uh, taken on for ourselves. Four days after Natasha was killed, police made an arrest. Have a look there, buddy. There you go. Hussein Ibrahim covered his head with his sweater as he was taken from arrest processing and put into a prisoner transport vehicle to be taken to the Calgary Remand Centre. Uh, he's uh, He was a young fellow who had come out to Calgary. I uh, don't think any intention of staying or living here for any period of time. Uh, had come out with a couple friends to go clubbing and... and, and that kind of thing, and then I assume we're going to eventually go back to Toronto area again. Not only did Ibrahim's DNA match the blood found on the getaway car, police found cuts on his hand. He was making poor decisions in terms of the people he was hanging out with and and, and that kind of thing. And I would uh, venture to say that he was, uh, was dangerous in that um, he... Uh, in a blink of an eye, I was able to take a life of somebody that was completely innocent and random uh, for no other reason, but just because they could. And I really think it it really came down to this sort of mentality that um, 
you know, I'm the big tough guy on the block and I've got a gun and I want to show everybody uh, how big and tough I am and how I can use it, how I can shoot it and 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 really kind of reinforcing this um, this fallacy that this gangster lifestyle is any kind of uh, 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 the imagery around it. It's it's it really is. It's this it's it's ridiculous. Ibrahim was charged with reckless discharge of a firearm. The two guns, the 45 caliber and the 40 caliber, were never recovered by police. Investigators identified the two men who were with Ibrahim that night as two known gang members from Toronto. But a second gunman was never charged. Evidence showed it was the single shot from Ibrahim's weapon that struck and killed Natasha. Just a few weeks later, the charge against Ibrahim was upgraded. He was accused of the second-degree murder of Natasha Farah. A year and a half later, there was a major development in the case. On April 29, 2016, three months before his trial was scheduled to begin, Hussein Ibrahim pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. A plea deal today in the 2014 shooting death of a Calgary woman. Natasha Farah was an innocent bystander when she was hit by a stray bullet outside of a downtown bar. Today, court heard the man responsible was drunk and didn't mean to hurt anyone. Nancy Hicks reports. Family of Natasha Farah left court Friday emotionally exhausted. Natasha is a nice person, not just because I'm the mother I'm saying that. She's someone who's really caring and um, she will do anything for anybody. 26-year-old Farah was an innocent bystander, just hanging out with friends outside of a downtown Calgary bar when she was shot and killed in August of 2014. The man responsible, Hussein Ibrahim, was originally charged with second-degree murder and has now pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. Whatever happened has happened. We are not going to change it. Court heard Ibrahim was out celebrating his birthday and was extremely drunk when he fired into a crowd, hitting Farah. Stupid is the best way of describing it. This is a, a combination of alcohol, testosterone, stupidity, and firearms. And it's, it's the perfect storm. And it just, it's so tragic that it resulted in the uh, death of an innocent bystander. 22-year-old Ibrahim apologized to Farah's family in court before being sentenced to nine years in jail. After credit for time already served, he has six years left. He did apologize. He said he made a mistake to do the shooting. He was not meant to shoot Natasha. He was not meant anybody to die. Hello? You did shooting in a group of public people it came to from socializing, standing there on a Friday night. What the hell did he expect in his brain? Hussein Ibrahim was eligible for full parole in June of 2018, just over two years after he was sentenced. But to date, he hasn't applied for release. On August 28, 2020, six years after Natasha was killed, Ibrahim will be up for statutory release. You know, I think that 
in the beginning I was kind of angry, but then as I learned more about who that person was and, and what they've been through in their life, I think that everybody is a product of their environment and their experiences. And it's unfortunate that Tasha's death had to be under, I mean, I, I guess uh, a result of his actions, but I don't really, I don't really have any feelings towards him. I think that it's, it's, it's really sad that things had to come to that, but I don't actually feel anything towards, I don't have anger towards him or, and I don't have like, I don't, if, if anything, I feel kind of sad for him, which is really weird to say, but I'm not really concerned about him getting out of jail or anything like that. It doesn't really affect me. I just try to live my life and make sure that I'm doing what I can to be the best version of myself. The same thing that infuriated Naima years ago when that innocent 15-year-old girl was killed in Toronto is still happening. I don't hate him. I don't have anything. I forgive him. But when I see it's still happening to other people, it just broke my heart. Like, I bury my daughter this way, and there's still other people die the same way year after year after year. Natasha's sudden death is a constant reminder to her family and friends to take time to connect with your loved ones. It's something Natasha always made a priority, right up until her final moments. And just the little things, even that night, the conversation that she was having with her mom. So we were all about to leave and, you know, um, step out with the girls. And uh, her mother called. I think someone said, hurry up, Tasha, let's go. She's like, no, no, no. I need to take this call. I have to speak with my mom. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, it's 1230 at night. Okay, sure. Why not? Let's, we'll totally um, just wait on you and just wait, wait till you're done. And um, I am so happy she took that call. I am so happy because who would have known what would have happened a few hours later. Natasha's mother has always been grateful for that final goodbye. And while she stayed strong for her surviving children, there are moments when she's all alone that she allows herself to mourn the devastating loss. I miss her a lot about her life. I miss her about, sometimes there's some things like her, when I want to talk to her and ask her, like, I usually, she's the one who I call her and ask if I need answers. She has a, something to tell you. When you, I have a question, she has the answer to tell me. If I need to do something, advice or something, Natasha is the one who will give you that advice. She has something to say all the time. So sometimes when I'm by myself, I'm sorry, I'm going to cry with this part. I kind of say, she's gone, she's no longer here. And then I just cry and that's it. And I don't do it in front of the kids because I don't want them to see me cry. I think like if they see me cry, they're gonna think, okay, mommy's hurting. And I don't wanna show my kids I'm hurting. So I try to be strong for them. And then when I came back to Toronto, 
I didn't, I, I completely shut down my life. I was like, what's the point of going to school? What's the point of even chasing the life if a kid who just graduated and just is gone too soon? Why, what are we chasing this life? It was really hard, but I tried my best. I was kind of strong and said, okay, you can cry, you can feel sad, life has to go on and the only thing you can do is just be, just take care of the ones who are still here. All of her family and friends know Natasha wouldn't want them to be sad. She would want them to remember the good times and the vivacious, passionate young woman she was. One thing I've done is I kept her Twitter page open because um, I know some of her friends and myself like to just go back and read some of her tweets. And I kind of every now and then like to go back and read her tweets. And it kind of just makes me laugh and smile about the things that she would, the witty things she would say or post. So for me, that's what I kind of do every now and then. And it really does put a smile on my face because it feels like I'm kind of talking to her in a weird way. Her last tweet was posted months before she passed away. But it spoke volumes about who she was. It said simply, I know what I want. Thank you so much for listening and letting me share Natasha's story with you. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, please go back and take the time to check out the other stories I've shared. These are all such important cases. And please consider sharing Crime Beat with your friends. I would love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. If you have a question about one of these episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. <laughs>